Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan, about man and God and law. Come and listen for a moment, lads, and hear me tell me tale. How across the sea from England I was condemned to sin. By the jury found me guilty, then says the judge, says he. Over a career lasting almost as long as Bob Dylan's, Griel Marcus has become one of America's most prominent cultural critics by extending his rock interests into literature, politics, history, religion, and art. But Greel's greatest contribution over many books, articles, and public conversations, two of which I was honored to facilitate myself, is his work on Bob Dylan. Invisible Republic, Bob Dylan's Basement Tapes, now titled The Old Weird America, The World of Bob Dylan's Basement Tapes, mines Dylan's musical mythology of America. It's not only the greatest book ever written about Bob Dylan, not by Bob Dylan. It, it may be the greatest book ever written about rock and roll. Soldiers on a convict ship were 500 strong Oh, they opened fire and somehow drove that pirate ship away But I'd rather have joined that pirate ship in his 1998 review of Invisible Republic in Descent, Bob Dylan's resident historian, Sean Wilentz, yes, that's an actual job, you can look it up. Wilentz wrote that, quote, The critic and the artist have locked into some strange, empathetic communication. Either Marcus has been reading Dylan's mind, or Dylan has, has read Marcus's book, or maybe both things have happened. Whatever the case, Invisible Republic ranks as the most brilliant study of Dylan's work to date, unquote. Twenty years later, with the release of Griel Marcus's Folk Music, a Bob Dylan biography in Seven Songs, Wilentz still may be right, though this new book may surpass even The Invisible Republic. I must build this on a grave. But it's by and by I'll slip my chains Into the bush I'll go And I'll join the brave bush rangers There, Jack Donahue and This is not to say that Griel Marcus toils alone in a field that he has in many ways defined, but the field of digging into Dylan with the same toolkit one would bring to words and art of Greatest esteem is now, in many ways, thanks to Griel Marcus, an approach for making meaning of culture that applies to everything, from masters like Dylan to schlock television to comic books to Duran Duran.
the history of how critics and commentators make sense of history and myth and intertextuality in art goes back to Greco-Roman and biblical rabbinical traditions. If you've listened to the 30-plus episodes of this podcast, you know that that's where I find some of the most important antecedents for exploring rock and roll. I call it rock and roll midrash, midrash. That's the art of interpreting sacred texts at the heart of all biblical commentary, the New Testament, and even the Quran, rock and roll. That's our particular favorite set of sacred texts here, but this midrashic vision applies to everything. For understanding art, especially art that relies upon words, Midrash always comes down to text and context. Text and context. It's it's in choosing what those terms mean and how to apply them to Dylan or Duran Duran or Saved by the Bell that determines what one has to say about Dylan, how you hear him, and what good listeners can bring back to the very music that they love. Akin to what the scholar Eric Auerbach taught in his touchstone post-war essay, Mimesis, written in a jail cell about the Odyssey, that canonical classic of all classics Dylan himself cited in his Nobel Prize speech, and the biblical story of the near murder of Isaac when God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Well, Auerbach's suggestion is that we need to hear Dylan's work, like any work, as fraught with background. That's Auerbach's term. Beyond rich immersion of just being with the music, being with the text, the critical listener seeks out those places where Dylan's work demands commentary and the weaving of a web of imaginative, sometimes unexpected interpretations in order to enter that fraught background and to hold the text in new ways. This is an obligation of the careful listener. Text and context. No more auction block for me. No more, no more. No more auction block for me. Many Bob Dylan's story is in one sense the story of his texts, lyrical, musical, performative. That's his art. That's the story of his genius, the story that resulted in his winning that Nobel Prize for Literature in 2016. And it is a textual story. But then there are the layers of Dylan and his work that are fraught with background. And that's how Marcus hears Dylan. This is the context, the ways in which Bob Dylan is a creative vessel for the world, seen and unseen, which he, as an artist, serves. No more drivers lash for me. No more, no more. No more drivers.
Now, this engine of seeking out context, the unsung, unspoken, unrevealed place of a song in the world, the fraught background of Dylan's work, doesn't necessarily jibe with the concept of writing a biography. And Greel talks about this potential conflict in his preface to folk music, a Bob Dylan biography, and seven songs. He's not interested in the text of a biography, which he covers in a brief page or two at the book's launch. No Clinton Halen's obsessions with what Dylan did when, every day for decades. No master thieves trying to pin a lyric to a lover or building or a family conflict or a war. Marcus wants to stream in and out of the text of songs to color a context he imagines for those very texts. How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind This is the associative art of Midrash, of reimagining received content. And as such, even as his work is made rock commentary credible, legitimate, Greel's approach is also deeply countercultural. We live in an age where glossy rock biopics and memoirs have flooded the music and entertainment market. Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and Freddie Mercury were not long dead before they were given their halos and their hagiographies. Elton John and Motley Crue didn't have to wait. Dylan, in contrast, allowed Todd Haynes a free hand to scramble history and myth in I'm Not There. Ten points for Dylan Dorr for messing with linear conventions. Though sadly, it looks like a mainstreamy Dylan biopic starring Timothy Chalamet is on the horizon. Now, this might... This might wreck my theory just like fake signatures on on books or paintings or selling songwriting licenses for hundreds of millions of dollars dented Dylan's credibility for others. Dylan on screen a la Hayes, however. He had black, white, young, old, male, and female faces. And so too does Greel Marcus's biography. In fact, this multitude of faces, personae, that Dylan inhabits. This is core to the case Marcus makes as biography. The, wind. the answer is blowing in the wind. The more Dylan is there as an artist, well, the more he's not. As for rock and roll memoirs, we talked about the fragmented, borrowed, times inscrutable scramble of Tarantula and Chronicles Volume 1 last episode. And dear Lord, the model of the rock memoir redemption story is as simple to follow and boring to witness as watching a Marvel film from Black Panther to Ant-Man. Same story, different costume, another $300 million 
spent and billions more made on the arc of myth and then killing it with fart jokes or Botox or military secret style special effects to animate and deaden the myth. Rockers, rockers in their memoirs, discover their gifts as wonderkins and bang away until seeming overnight success, ruling the world, being famous, taking drugs, getting lost, and then they either never come back or find redemption with younger spouses and greatest hits. You just have to rearrange their faces and give them all another name. VH1's behind the music forever on repeat somehow. Amazingly, we enjoy this stuff and I... I don't know exactly why. No more auction block for me. No more. Dylan doesn't like playing to cliches in his text or his context. No more auction block for me. Neither does Griel Marcus, and this is what we're here to talk about. Dylan's texts and contexts through the eyes of his most esteemed listener. Time for another notch in the holster of Bob Dylan Book Month, and it's been quite a long month. Months of months. Dylan and Roth, Tarantula and Chronicles. And now we are asking the question that any inquiring Dylan mind wants to know. Why does the work of Griel Marcus matter? Not just for an enlightened approach to hearing Dylan, but in what art means in our world. Not only how to hear or see Dylan or art, but how to follow the hints within the world that maybe even the artists don't know they are teaching us about. And in this way to go beyond the text and into context and back again, to take music in particular as seriously and joyously as any religious or sacred text, and to build a world with it at a time when the world needs myths, uncheapened and unsweetened by the accepted tropes of pop culture in order to get us to what's next. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Welcome. Welcome to Chapter 7 of Season 3 of Bob Dylan about man and God in law. Context. Why Creole Marcus matters. Love me right. Love me morning, noon, and night. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store 
or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Bruce Springsteen, who I love, despite the often flat work of much of the last few decades, he never got back the bones of what makes him great because he believed in his own myth too much. Tom Waits never left the bones of what made him great. In that crazy corner, he rattles them like no one else. Paul Simon lost the vulnerability. Joni Mitchell outsmoked her voice and outjonied her legacy, even if she's making a late run for it now. Neil Young just isn't very interesting musically anymore, and none of them not one, has had the kind of attention that Dylan has received. Not one has had a Boswell the way that Dylan has had Griel Marcus. Much like Dylan wrote and recorded an album in relationship to the Vietnam War without mentioning it in the form of John Wesley Harding, Griel Marcus wrote his first book about Dylan without a single chapter in the man's name. The opening lines of Mystery Train serve as a kind of foreshadowing of the work of Marcus's career. Words written nearly 50 years ago in Berkeley, California, dated August 9th, 1974. They tell it like it was, tell it like it is. Maybe they tell it like it will be too. He wrote, Writing these opening notes reminds me of the prefaces to the American history books that were written during World War II, when the authors, looking back for the meaning of the revolution of the Civil War, or whatever, drew modest but determined parallels between their work and the struggle. They were affirming that their work was part of that struggle, that the attempt to understand America was up for grabs. Those writers were also saying, at least this is what they now say to me, that to do one's most personal work in a time of public crisis is an honest, legitimate, paradoxically democratic act of common faith. That one keeps faith with one's community by offering whatever it is that one has to say. I mean that those writers were exhilarated 30 years ago by something we can only call patriotism and humbled by it too. While I feel some kinship with those writers, I began this book in the fall of 1972 and finished it late in the summer of 1974. Inevitably, it reflects, and I hope contains, the peculiar moods of those times when the country came face to face with an obscene perversion of itself that could be neither accepted nor destroyed. Moods of rage, excitement, loneliness, fatalism, desire. When first unto this country a stranger I came I courted a fair maiden, and she was her name. I courted her for love, and her love I didn't obtain. Do you think of any reason or right to complain? Bob Dylan travels on that mystery train of mystery train. Griel Marcus's first book, Like a Ghost like the musical ghosts that populate every single one of Griel Marcus's books. He writes in folk music, His unmatched feel for the mysteries of American song, Marcus says of Dylan, 
in one of the few direct references to him. But it's only in the notes section on the band. And though he's written of punk, Van Morrison, F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Doors, Bill Clinton, and Elvis, and a full array of American literary and pop prophetic voices, he always comes back to Dylan. Even when you think he's not there, he's there. And, and there's someone else there, too. Maybe it's obvious to us now. But it wasn't always. Marcus's work gives license to rock critique parallels what his mentor Pauline Kael gave to film, or Joan Didion to culture, or Hunter S. Thompson to politics. It's personal. He, Marcus, the critic, is always there with the artist. And the more personal the critic can be without making the critique about the critic, the better we can find ourselves in the work she's talking about. We are there because she is there. Now, there are a million good reasons why rock and roll creates intimacy, but the industry of rock thrives on making myths personal. The great critics are part of this. They are there so that we can go deeper into being there too. Hello? This is your mother. Are you there? Are you coming home? Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. The personal 
the personal. The folk music is full of beautiful, seemingly personal moments. And one that stopped me dead in my tracks and still keeps me lingering is a quote from Machiavelli, of all people. I probably should have known this quote before, but I didn't. And here, Marcus describes Bob Dylan in the, quote, Monastery of Folk. That's Greel's phrase. But he's also clearly speaking of himself in the most personal of ways about that feel, that feel like Keith Richards and Tom Waits's song of the same name, that feel of intellectual, emotional, spiritual communion. The context is Machiavelli exiled from his beloved Florence toward the end of his life when he writes a letter to his friend Francesco Vettori. Machiavelli, the 15th, 16th century Italian diplomat and philosopher known universally as a teacher of the anything-goes use of power that autocrats have employed since time immemorial and who said that politics have no relation to morals. Well, here Machiavelli throws down the watchword of what it means to experience one's work and self within tradition. Now, that's the context. Here's the text. Once the evening has arrived, I come home and enter my study. In the entryway, I take off my daytime clothing, covered with mud and dirt, and put on garments that are royal and suitable for a court. Changed into suitable clothes, I step into the ancient courts of ancient men, received lovingly by them. I nourish myself on the food that is mine, for which I was born. There I am unashamed to talk with them and ask them the reasons for their actions. And they, their humanity, answer. The herbs and senior killed a poor who had a carol with a cane that he twirled. Now his diamond ring figure at a Baltimore hotel. Society gathered and the cops were called in and his weapon took from him as they rode him in custody down to the station and put Williams and Singapore first. This is what it means to be a listener and also to be a critic whose critique is not just artful but art in and of itself. This immersion into the worlds of tradition. This is the kind of listening both Dylan and Marcus share. Yes, it's personal, and yes, it's political. So Machiavelli is actually apropos political and personal. Personal and political, they mix each other up all the time in Marcus's work. Dylan's Blind Willie McTell or The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll or even Blown in the Wind withstanding when it comes to the obligation of a music lover to witness, to ally, perhaps even more than Dylan, Marcus is always wrestling with issues of race in America. If Dylan said in Chronicles Volume 1 that the Civil War was where America died on a cross and was resurrected, and that this is the crux through which everything Dylan writes, the same might be true of Greel Marcus. He was there with Sly and the Family Stone's rage in Mystery Train, and he's written empathetically and emphatically about the impossibilities of American politics, which means race, ever since. Come gather round people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone 
If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are a-changing Marcus is much loved in Europe, but his political heart is clearly in America and the American story of both mythic politics, that invisible republic, and the scars of its embedded injustices. It was humbling to hear not only how songs mark history, he writes in folk music, or even make it, but become part of its fabric or part of the flag. For whatever you can hear the song sang, one in rage and disgust, the other from a calm distance, that might be worth. If Dylan puts on the face of, quote, someone trying on the role of someone who didn't care, unquote, in the song Things Have Changed, which won him a Academy Award from the chapter on Bob Dylan's Times Say Are Changing, Marcus doesn't want to escape the grind of American political promise. He does not want to try on the role of someone who didn't care. It's personal. All politics is personal. In context of the murder of George Floyd, Marcus quotes Minnesota politician Ruth Richardson, who said that our systems are working the way they were designed to work. She means oppression. She means racism. She means 400 years of racism writing political policy. But somehow, in that context, from John Edwards to Thomas Paine to Abraham Lincoln to MLK, Marcus can't give up on the possibility that somewhere underneath the evidence of a country forever writhing on the cross of race, there are plain-smoking truths, often spoken by musicians, that will put it down and pull it down to the ground for healing. It is always about justice in the politics of Griel Marcus's books, progressive, aspirational, discontented, but awed by the possibility that after the personal, which is always political, both the personal and the political are also mythic, and the drive toward a kind of redemption, despite the endless refrain of Robert Johnson's terrors in the night and the riot going on under our noses, there is a possibility that things might change. People are crazy, times are strange. I'm locked in time, out of range. I used to have things of And change, thinking about it, dreaming about it, wondering about it, why it didn't happen, if the times are changing at all, or if they're always the same, that's a mythic question. A personal political mythic question, and this is something that rock and roll nailed in the golden era, this ability to think big and small, mythic and personal, political, and rock being mythic is in no small part thanks to writers like Marcus who raise it up. Mm-hmm. 
Now, there are a lot of <laughs> rungs on the ladder of rock and roll myth. It spans from the managers and publicists of the age creating rock and roll mythologies to the acceptance and experience of rock and roll as being a kind of sacred text. What is its myth? What is its weave of stories that explain the unexplainable? That's what myths do. Explain the unexplainable. Bring magic down to something that has a kind of cause and effect to it. It explains, myth does, how we see the world and how we feel through a shared narrative to hold individual and communal experiences together. Rock does this. That's its intimacy and its mythology. And it still does this for those who continue to believe. And rock critics like Marcus have a free associative approach that's willing to stretch a lyric or a riff until it nearly breaks before bringing it back to base. But Greil Marcus's take implies that the code breakers for solving the myth of America are its music makers. Novelists and filmmakers and artists have a place in this story, but the barometer of the American soul is its musicians. Like Bob Dylan in Murder Most Foul, the last of the seven songs to be explored in this book, Marcus believes in the songs and the singers. If the shuffle of songs hits its stride right, abiding truth will come. But in order for that to happen, both we and they have to listen. You can hear when Odetta sings the song he writes in the chapter on Blown in the Wind based on the song No More Auction Block, as heard perhaps most cogently by Dylan in Odetta's version. She sings slowly, seems almost to stop, insisting that each word in the song symbolizes a story too vast to really tell. Marcus speaks of Dylan's, quote, quest to find a place for someone walking with a toothache in his heel in pages of riffs on the oldest American song tropes from Jim Crow and Dan Tucker from minstrelry, love and theft. He calls his book, his work, a book of cigarette butts as a play on the overbearing, unimaginative Dylanology of A.J. Weberman, trying to overread everything into what is overheard in both Dylan's life and his work. So is Greel Marcus's personal political mystic reading of Dylan overreading too? Is his hearing overhearing too much? What should we hear? And why does it matter? There is a softness and vulnerability to this book that grounds the hearing and reading in something relatable, not just for the readers, but I'm guessing for Dylan himself somehow here. That groundedness mixes with the grandeur in two particular faces throughout the course of the book. The first is death. This is in so many ways a book about death. It's a kind of elegy. Time after time, Marcus notes when a subject mentioned even in passing has passed. They die old or young, naturally or too soon, and there's no real pattern to the deaths, only that he notes in nearly every case, nearly every figure cited, when and at what age they died. Maybe it's because Marcus himself is getting older and he's also noted publicly that he struggled with medical issues for the year that bumped up into the writing of this book. Now, he covers more than 150 years of folk music in folk music, but each main figure is cited as a kind of end of his or her own era. And the book ends wondering, sadly, wistfully, longingly, 
about what happens when Dylan himself is gone. What happens to his era? The second element, alongside the element of mortality, that second face, which I discovered in my own writing about Dylan in my book, is an engine of empathy. That's Greel's term. That drives the writing of the book and ultimately drives Dylan's music. A world gathering around a campfire of unanswerable questions, and it takes everyone around the campfire to hear the whole song, he writes. Bob Dylan was living his life as much as a medium as he was a songwriter, he writes. Somewhere between the public and the private is this. The music has to come from within, yes, but you have to play it right. That's Little Brother Montgomery, quoted by Marcus, saying that. But Dylan and Marcus might have said it too. There's something very rock and roll about our great writers and poets leaving everything on the field at the end of a project, an album, a show. I have said everything I possibly can. It's my last testament. Mic drop. Folk music reads like this kind of soft elegy in many ways. For Dylan as a figure who is both of and who makes his times, but also as Marcus on Marcus, generating, in many ways, the most precise, generous, and open-ended writing of his career. The empathy he finds in Dylan is reflected in the open-hearted voice he offers to his readers, too. So, Griel Marcus, he wrote a biography underneath history, in which facts are stepping stones for what really matter. Justice, empathy, creativity, mortality, humility, daring, listening. Rather than a last testament for the author or its subject, it's a kind of invitation to the reader and listener to pull up a chair and stay lit in something like a musical forever, just to hear what happens and to take comfort and joy in that invitation and powered by that engine of empathy, to be in good company while you do it. As Leonard Cohen once sang, we are ugly, but we have the music. Now maybe that's all we've got. This this invitation to listen and always find something new from an amazing listener, or two amazing listeners, Dylan and Marcus. But in Rock and Roll Midrash, like this book and like these songs, that listening to music can lead us anywhere. And this is not a little. This is a lot. This has been Chapter 7 of Season 3 of About Man and God and Law. Thank you for joining us once again for Bob Dylan Book Month. This very long month continues with a discussion of Bob Dylan's book. It's only fitting. Bob Dylan, The Philosophy of Modern Song is up next. You can find my book, about man and God and law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan, wherever fine books are sold. Visit mangodlaw.com for more information on upcoming events and other projects related 
to the book and the podcast. We are proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of the great podcasts for music lovers at PantheonPodcasts.com. I am your host, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Thanks for coming. Take it away, Jeff. See you.